0: There's a literary archetype, uh, very common in pop culture, of the reluctant hero, or uh, reluctant warrior. It's a character who doesn't really want to get involved. It's not his fight. But events and circumstances conspire to compel him into action, often against his better judgment. Uh, Aragorn in Lord of the Rings uh, wants to live out his life as Strider the Ranger, but the the rise of Sauron uh, forces him to return to Gondor and and resist the uh, evil darkness of Sauron, uh, aided by a few similarly uh, reluctant hobbits. Clint Eastwood's William Money in Unforgiven, or uh, Mel Gibson in, uh, well, just about any Mel Gibson movie, Braveheart or The Patriot, compelled to fight by acts of cruelty, Now, I'm told that Rhaegar Targaryen in the uh, Song of Ice and Fire books uh, fits this mold, too, but um, I have to confess that I've only ever seen the TV version. Or how about Han Solo? Uh, He's just trying to make a few bucks, uh, smuggling a mysterious old man and his young companion to Alderaan, and ends up as a leader in the rebellion. Or if you have more sophisticated tastes... Uh, Odysseus in the Iliad pretends to have lost his mind to avoid sailing for Troy, but his cover gets blown, and he ends up not getting home for 12 years or whatever it is. The reason, uh, I think, that the reluctant hero character is so popular in fiction is because it's relatable to real life. The uh, American Civil War, for instance, has several characters who who you might fit into... um, this archetype. In the months leading up to the war, Stonewall Jackson tried to organize a movement to prevent war by, by writing church leaders throughout the country, and Robert E. Lee told Winfield Scott that, that he wanted to stay neutral, which Scott correctly told Lee would be impossible. And the subject of our show today, William Tecumseh Sherman, well, he thought at first that he might just stay out of the whole thing, too. After some midlife setbacks, uh, Sherman had found an ideal spot for himself as as the commandant of the Louisiana Military Academy. But when hostilities uh, increasingly appeared inevitable, Sherman was reluctantly forced to abandon plans to build a home near the school and move his family south. Instead, he accepted a position with the St. Louis Railroad, while north and south geared up for war. But hostilities followed Sherman to St. Louis, too, and skirmishes over secession sprang up on his doorstep. You can debate how sincere Sherman actually was in his reticence to join the Union war effort. Either way, though, it was destined not to last. The demand for trained soldiers was too high, and the supply too low, and he was feeling pressure from father-in-law Thomas Ewing, and wife Ellen. Uh, The country was in desperate need of men like Sherman. And besides, in Sherman's mind, uh, this was a cause that was about as worthwhile as you could get. Uh, Not ending slavery, he he didn't really care about that. Uh, But that's not what the war was going to be about, at least according to President Lincoln, who Sherman did not vote for. Lincoln needed men to preserve the Union, and Sherman did care about that. Uh, On just about any other issue of the day, uh, Sherman was pretty apathetic. But on secession, he wrote uh, that he was an ultra. He favored coercion. And so, in June of 1861, he found himself in a location that he detested, Washington, D.C., working in an inspector general position, tasked with investigating unit readiness and and then training volunteers. Sherman didn't like the assignment, and he didn't especially like the volunteers either. They weren't real soldiers, and they weren't taking their training seriously. In all fairness, though, the men didn't like him either. They were expecting a, a casting call military man, and Sherman was not that. Uh, One volunteer described Sherman as, quote, A tall, gaunt form clad in a threadbare blue coat, the sleeves so short as to reveal a long stretch of bony wrist, the trousers at least four inches less than the usual length. End quote. He didn't look like what the men were expecting, and the men were not taking the training seriously. Garrison duty wasn't really Sherman's cup of tea, either. He was very high energy. He wanted to keep moving and stay in on the action. And he wanted a field command, not a desk job. And working in Washington was, well, it was too much like politics. Sherman was not and never would be a political general. In that department, he had to rely on his wife and father-in-law, who both did have excellent political instincts. So by the end of the month, Sherman had what he wanted. He he was out of D.C., transferred to Northern Virginia, uh, still protecting the capital, but no longer in it. And he had command of a brigade in the army led by Irving McDowell. Under pressure from the Lincoln administration, McDowell was preparing the army for a movement on Richmond, beginning with a confrontation of the rebels uh, under PGT Beauregard in nearby Manassas. McDowell and his superior, Winfield Scott, Uh, Well, they thought the men were not ready, but Commander-in-Chief thought otherwise, and they started marching. Sherman, for his part, was was not impressed with the men under his command any more than he was with the men he had been tasked with training in Washington. And he agreed with McDowell's and Scott's assessment. They were not soldiers, and he thought that they might never be. He saw them as undisciplined thugs and sloths. Uh, On the march, they left ranks, basically whenever they felt like it, often to steal from local farms, which Sherman uh, ironically found reprehensible. Uh, He sent a staff officer to the back of the column, ordering the men to stay with the army and to stop foraging. Uh, At this point, Sherman uh, still saw commandeering private property from farmers as just an unacceptable act. It was uh, beneath the dignity of the United States Army. But the messenger came back with a, a rebuke for Sherman from the men. Quote, Tell Colonel Sherman we'll be having all the water, pigs, and chickens we want. End quote. Discipline was in short supply, but the men were about to learn the importance of training and military order. On July 21st, Sherman's brigade left as part of a flanking force attempting to circle around the rebel left. McDowell had worked up a decent plan, and it might have worked if not for poor execution uh, and the men's inexperience, which is a recurring theme that we see throughout the beginning of the Civil War. Sherman's contingent managed to get around the rebel flank, and they nearly rolled it up, but the attack stalled at Henry Hill, and a counterattack put the disorganized Yankees to flight. Compared to the Union Army at Bull Run, uh, as a whole, Sherman's brigade uh, well actually performed fairly well. They took the highest rate of casualties uh, on the Union side, which uh, doesn't really sound like a, a a good indicator, but but which which means that they stayed in the fight longer than most. Eventually, though, they, they panicked when the rebel yell rang out, and uh, many of the men started to flee. Sherman, though. Uh, displayed a calm under pressure that, that helped prevent a total rout. He moved rapidly throughout the lines, rallying the men, rounding up deserters, and taking too many balls uh, for the effort, uh, both of which were fortunately only grazing wounds, and losing his horse when it was shot out from underneath him. When the rebel cavalry began pursuing the retreating Federals, Sherman, keeping his head, attempted to form a Napoleonic square to resist the troopers. Now, uh, the men didn't have anything like the training necessary to pull off that maneuver. And Napoleonic tactics would, uh, of course, uh, soon be proven mostly ineffective in the face uh, of improved military technology. But the important thing for our purposes was that Sherman, who hadn't ever really been tested in battle, remember, he, he missed out on the Mexican War. He had demonstrated that when the bullets were flying, he was at his best. Even so, his efforts were insufficient to prevent what he later described as, quote, the shameless flight of the armed mob we led into Virginia. End quote. As the retreat continued back toward Washington, Sherman wasn't shy about voicing his displeasure with the men's performance and with their unsoldierly conduct afterwards. A subordinate described one particular interaction quote, They became clamorous for food. Sherman sneered at them for such unsoldierly conduct. They begged for some place to rest. He bade them sleep on the ground. They had no blankets, many not even a jacket, and all were shivering and wet. Sherman called them a pack of New York loafers and thieves. Now, I'm emphasizing the disdain that Sherman had for the volunteers in 1861 for a reason. As the war went on, his opinion of the volunteers would change dramatically. And vice versa, too. Uh, He'd end up thinking of his army as the the single best fighting force in the world. And and the the men's um, absolute devotion to Uncle Billy by 1864 is legendary. But these were still green volunteers. And Sherman was still an impatient, surly commander- With a bad temper. By July 26th, just a few days after Bull Run, many of the men were packing up to go home. They had their taste of battle, their 90-day enlistments uh, were up, and well, they figured they were done. Sherman thought otherwise, informing the men in no uncertain terms that anyone who abandoned the army without leave was going to be punished. More than 100 were placed under arrest for pushing back on Sherman's orders. So the disorder in the army didn't go unnoticed in Washington, and a concerned President Lincoln and Secretary of State Seward decided to inspect things for themselves to try to improve morale. When they visited Sherman's brigade, Sherman discouraged the customary cheering of the president as as not suitable for proper soldiers, which uh, Lincoln accepted, telling the soldiers, quote, Don't cheer, boys. I confess I rather like it myself. But Colonel Sherman here says it is not military. End quote. Some of the men thought they'd take advantage of having the politicians on site by reporting their displeasure with their commanding officer to the president himself. A subordinate officer, uh, not an enlisted man, but an officer, reported to Lincoln that earlier that day, Sherman had threatened to shoot him. The grievance went something like this. Uh, the officer thought he was due for some time off uh, after the battle, so he told Sherman, quote, Colonel, I am going to New York today. What can I do for you? Quote. Sherman, in his candid manner, replied, quote, Captain, if you attempt to leave without orders, it will be mutiny, and I will shoot you like a dog. End quote. Uh, upon reporting his grievance to the president, the complaining officer expected at least a, a little bit of sympathy, if not a reprimand of Sherman. He did not get the reaction that he had hoped for. Lincoln simply laughed it off and gave the volunteer officer some advice. Quote, well, if I were you, and he threatened to shoot me, I would not trust him, for I believe he would do it. End quote. The rail splitter's country humor eased the tension, and Lincoln demonstrated to Sherman his reluctance to second-guess commanders in the field, which Sherman, of course, appreciated. In fact, far from admonishing Sherman, Lincoln recognized that effective commanders needed to be promoted, and Sherman was granted the rank of brigadier general. After having missed the Mexican War, Sherman got the opportunity to prove himself at Bull Run, and he had proved his competence. As it turns out, Sherman was at his best while on the battlefield. He lacked the diplomacy of some other commanders, but diplomacy wasn't his job. A contemporary, Sylvanus Cadwallader, provides a great summary of Sherman's character and his personality as a soldier. Quote, He was preeminently a man of action, and exhibited his greatest qualities in aggressive movements and campaigns. The impetuosity of his character was exemplified whenever he was in supreme command. He was thoroughly subordinate and obedient to higher military authority, but he lacked Grant's superb equipoise. He often failed to control his temper. The Portraits of Blue and Gray. Uh, this is part two in our series on William Tecumseh Sherman. In this episode, we started with Manassas and we're going to make it all the way through Shiloh. And then next time, we'll start looking at what Sherman is more famous for his fighting out west with General Grant, followed by the famous, or notorious, if you're from the south, conquest of Atlanta and march to the sea. Our series on Sherman will probably end up being a four-parter, and then our next series will be on one of the Civil War's most infamous villains, Nathan Bedford Forrest. If you have any questions or comments about the show, you can reach us at blueandgraypodcast@gmail.com. at gmail.com. It's always fun to hear from people who are listening to and hopefully enjoying the show. As always, thank you all for listening, and without further ado... This is our Portrait of William Tecumseh Sherman, Part 2. After Bull Run, both sides went back to their corners, and things quieted down for a while, at least in the Eastern Theater. Newly minted Brigadier William Sherman was transferred to hotly contested Kentucky to serve as second-in-command to General Robert Anderson, the former commander of Fort Sumter Uh, who knew Sherman well and had specifically requested him. Kentucky was the birthplace of of both men who currently held the title of president, Lincoln and Davis, having both been foaled in the bluegrass state. And that state's political sympathies were split about as evenly as possible. The brother-versus-brother motif that comes up in many accounts of the Civil War was as much or more pronounced in Kentucky than anywhere else in the country. President Lincoln's brother-in-law, a Kentuckian like Mary Todd, fought and died for the Confederacy. Lincoln was adamant that Kentucky remain in the Union, but that early in the war, the Union could only afford to assign a few thousand men to protecting the state, fewer than the rebels had in the vicinity and substantially fewer than the Federals believed the rebels had. Holding Kentucky was a tough assignment, and the stress of the situation may have contributed first to General Anderson's retirement, uh, as his health deteriorated to the point where he could no longer competently command, and then to the mental health problems, which unfortunately brought Sherman to the attention of the national press. Sherman hadn't particularly wanted Overall command, but he was kind of stuck with the job, and the intense pressure quickly started to wear on him. He wrote to Ellen, We are cut off from everything. Indeed, I have hardly had time to eat, sleep, and change clothes. A reporter, uh, quoted by Shelby Foote, described the mood of the normally energetic Sherman as brooding melancholy, broken up by intermittent fits of rage and fright. In his near-panicked state, he penned a letter directly to President Lincoln, despairing over the inadequacy of his force and its provisions for the task at hand. Sherman painted a picture of a desperate situation, Kentucky on the precipice of falling to the Confederacy, as much larger rebel forces closed in on Sherman's small army from all sides. Even more, the men Sherman had were inadequately provisioned, and lacked the arms, ordnance, and food they needed for defense, let alone to go on the attack. Now, this complaint had a little bit of merit. This was before the incredible Yankee war production and logistical brilliance had hit its stride. Sherman was leading an army with provisions that looked more like they had come from Richmond than Washington. Uh, Of course, in a few years, Sherman would show that poor supply lines was a problem easily overcome through a little foraging and some earnest appeals to the generosity of local farmers. In 1861, though, Sherman was still of the mind that commandeering food from non-combatants was beneath the dignity of an American army, and he strictly forbid the practice, even ordering the execution of a soldier found guilty of pilfering a cow from a local farm. Sherman's stance would soften considerably as the war went on, Uh, But a little too late for that poor private. So Lincoln's response to Sherman's despairing letter was to send Secretary of War Simon Cameron to investigate. You know, determine if things were as bleak as Sherman claimed. A jumpy General Sherman told Cameron, Our force here is out of all proportion to the position. Our defeat would be disastrous for the nation, and to expect of new men... Who never bore arms to do miracles is not right. End quote. He needed 50,000 men yesterday to hold his position and 200,000 if he was expected to hold all of Kentucky. And we need to emphasize it wasn't just what Sherman said, though his tales of large rebel armies on all sides were troubling enough. It was the manner in which he said it. This is a guy who, under normal conditions, is high energy and a little gabby. When he spoke to Cameron, he was obviously sleep-deprived and overstressed, and as a result, he came across as disjointed and confused. Cameron's oft-quoted response to Sherman's request for thousands more men that weren't even available to the primary Union army defending Washington was, Great God, where are they to come from? Cameron thought Sherman had genuinely lost his mind, and was suffering from paranoid delusions. The the war secretary was, was quoted by newspaper reporters as saying Sherman had become, quote, crazy, insane, and mad, end quote. That's right, all three. Last episode, we mentioned the beginning of Sherman's passionate hatred of the press. Well, the seeds planted in California came to full blossom in Kentucky when the national press ran with the story of Sherman's supposedly lost mind. A Cincinnati paper ran the succinct headline, General William T. Sherman, Insane. And the story wasn't any better. The shocking fact that he was a madman was developed by orders that his subordinates knew to be preposterous and refused to obey. Then, after Sherman was relieved of command, the same paper added a little more condescending compassion. The harsh criticisms which have been lavished upon this gentleman provoked by his strange conduct will now give way to feelings of the deepest sympathy for him in his great calamity. It seems providential that the country has not to mourn the loss of an army through the loss of the mind of a general into whose hands were committed the vast responsibility of the command in Kentucky. End quote. Or stated plainly, Thank God we got rid of this poor madman before he wrecked his army and lost the whole dang state. Sherman didn't have any friendly reporters to defend him either, because he wouldn't talk to them previously and generally tried to keep the press out of his camps. Oh, and he also ordered the arrests of reporters and even tried to execute one for treason when he ran a story which Sherman thought uh, had publicized crucial information about troop movements. That happened later, though. Sherman recognized that with all the negative publicity and insanity rumors, he had lost the confidence of his men, and frankly, with all the stress that he was under, he may have been on the verge of, or even in the middle of, a nervous breakdown. So he asked to be relieved of command, which General McClellan, then in overall command, granted, privately commenting, quote, Sherman is gone in the head, end quote. Sherman's immediate superior, Henry Halleck, formally granted Sherman leave, noting in his report that Sherman's physical and mental system is so completely broken by labor and care as to render him for the present entirely unfit for duty. And Ellen came and picked him up and took him home to Ohio. And I really think that brings home that Sherman legitimately was struggling with with very significant mental health challenges. He didn't just hop on a train and go back to Lancaster. Allen came and got him and took him home. Now, in Sherman's defense, part of the problem, I think, was that he was viewing the war more clearly than the vast majority of his colleagues. The idea that an army of 200,000 would be necessary to occupy and and hold a region uh, with significant Confederate sympathies and the potential for insurgency it seemed out of touch with reality in 1861, when most everyone still thought an army of fewer than 100,000 would capture Richmond and end the war. But if he had made that assertion in 1863 or 1864, it would have seemed a lot more rational. Sherman was envisioning a long, bitter, bloody war when most of the rest of the country was still thinking in terms of limited war. Uh, If you want another uh, analogy to the Iliad, and I do, Sherman here is like Cassandra, the Trojan princess. Uh, When people reference a Cassandra now, they typically mean someone who is being hyperbolic and blowing potential risks or dangers way out of proportion. But in the Iliad itself, Cassandra prophesizes that uh, if Paris, the lost Trojan prince, is allowed to return to the city and taken back into the royal family, The result will be the downfall of Troy. The other Trojans refuse to believe Cassandra, and and she goes crazy with visions of Troy's destruction and frustration with the royal family's uh, refusal to heed her warnings. But, of course, Cassandra's predictions ultimately prove true, and Troy is in fact destroyed. Likewise, Sherman's beliefs about the manpower and bloodshed necessary to win the war ultimately proved to be pretty much accurate. But in 1861, they seemed a little nutty, and the carnage he saw coming, and the inability of the powers that be to recognize and prepare for it, uh, coupled with the the stress of command and the destruction of his reputation in the media, caused Sherman to have a breakdown. And you know, there's another famous work of fiction uh, associated with the Civil War, with uh, a character whose name is often used to mean a certain thing when the actual character from the story doesn't really correspond to the intended reference. Uh, But we'll leave that for another episode. Uh, Email the show if you can guess what I'm talking about. This was a really dark time for William Tecumseh Sherman. Once he was able to separate himself from the situation, he was ashamed of how he had responded to the pressure. And the press continued to pile on, which didn't help things. There has been a fairly successful effort in recent years to, to remove the stigma for mental illness, uh, but that was not the case in 1861. Sherman confided to his brother John, quote, I do think I should have committed suicide were it not for my children, end quote. Fortunately, though, he had some important advocates defending him in Washington, most notably John and Thomas Ewing. And there was also Ellen who passionately defended her husband, even writing directly to President Lincoln. Sherman appreciated the efforts on his behalf, especially Ellen's. In an emotional letter expressing his gratitude, he wrote, quote, I ought to get on my knees and implore your pardon for the anxiety and shame I have caused you. May you rest assured that the devotion and affection that you have exhibited in the past winter has endeared you more than ever, End quote. So after some time off to clear his head, Sherman got back in the saddle. As Shelby Foote puts it, quote, Halleck having decided he was not insane after all, just high-strung and talkative. Besides, he had a brother in the Senate. End quote. Foote then goes on with a a really well-written passage um, laying out uh, Sherman's physical appearance and then the uh, effect his, his return had on the men. Quote, Red headed and gaunt, with sunken temples and a grizzled, short cropped ginger beard, he had a wild expression about his eyes and a hungry look that seemed to have been with him always. His shoulders twitched, and his hands were never still, always picking at something, twirling a button, or fiddling with his whiskers. They, meaning the soldiers, had not fancied getting their first taste of combat under a man who had been sent home such a short while back under suspicion of insanity. Though at first their fears were intensified, they learned better. End quote. He was assigned to Paducah, Kentucky, under little known Brigadier Ulysses Grant. Grant was the younger man, came from a, a less connected family, had a lower rank at West Point, and a less impressive antebellum career. But the relationship where Grant was in charge and Sherman reported to him uh, worked well and benefited both men tremendously. They hit it off quickly, becoming good friends in short order. Now, that was partly because they could relate to one another. Grant was still trying to overcome the damage to his reputation uh, from his drinking while stationed in Oregon uh, that had resulted in his resignation. And, of course, Sherman was still in the middle of his, uh, his PR problems. But there was more to the successful partnership than that their relative strengths and weaknesses complemented one another. Uh, Sherman was gifted with strategy and logistics. Grant was a a leader who won the loyalty of his men with his dogged determination and can-do spirit. And neither man ever worried that the other would stab him in the back if an opportunity for career advancement presented itself. And as it turned out, that opportunity, at least for Grant, was about to present itself in Tennessee, Grant saw an opportunity to score a big strategic hit uh, against the Confederate Western forces by taking the loosely defended forts Henry and Donelson, which stood 12 miles apart from one another uh, on the Tennessee and Cumberland Rivers, respectively. General Henry Halleck, who Grant reported to, was reluctant to authorize the offensive, but the combined lobbying of Grant and Commodore Andrew Foote in command of the freshwater gunboats Grant envisioned as, as being central to the attack, was able to persuade old brains, as Halleck was called. Now, we're going to kind of gloss over Fort Henry and Fort Donelson because we went into detail in the series on Grant, and because Sherman's role was, was fairly limited. Uh, he was still, still easing back into things, so he was primarily involved in logistical planning and consulting with Grant on strategy. Once again, going to Shelby Foote, uh, he wrote of Sherman's involvement in uh, the Henry and Donaldson campaigns, quote, During the Donaldson campaign, Sherman had worked hard, forwarding reinforcements and supplies and offering to waive his then-superior rank for a chance to come up and join the fighting, end quote. So to keep the story moving, uh, what you need to know is that Grant led 15,000 men against Fort Henry defended by only 3,000 rebels, on February 5th and 6th. The fort had 17 heavy guns, but didn't have the munitions or the men to use all of them, and flooding prevented the full effectiveness of the fort's defenses. As a result, there was only token resistance before uh, Fort Henry was evacuated and surrendered, with the rebels moving to Fort Donaldson. Grant predicted that he would follow up the easy win by taking Donaldson only two days later, but Donaldson put up stiffer resistance. There, Grant brought 24,000 men and a flotilla of ironclad freshwater gunboats against 16,000 defenders, who this time had some ammo. Grant managed to surround the fort, but a February 15th surprise flank attack breakout attempt uh, blew a hole in his line and nearly allowed the rebel force to escape. But bewilderingly, Rebel Commander General John Floyd, a political general through and through, pulled back to the fort. Floyd and second-in-command Gideon Pillow, uh, another politician, then decided that the honorable thing to do would be to flee during the night and leave the surrender of the fort to Simon Bolivar Buckner, uh, who actually uh, did have some military experience and who happened to be an old friend of Sam Grant's from their shared West Point days, and who had vouched for Grant and even loaned him money when Grant was at his lowest point trying to get back to Ohio after his unceremonious resignation from the Army for drinking on the job. Uh, Buckner tried to entreat for terms, and Grant famously replied that only unconditional surrender would be acceptable, which, of course, led to Grant's wartime nickname, Unconditional Surrender Grant, like, U.S. You get it? Forts Henry and Donelson were not that big in terms of the numbers engaged, but were huge in the grand scheme of the war. First, uh, they were the, the first what you might call major victories for the Union, and, and so the press played them up and made Grant a household name as the face of the victory. So it was good PR and a morale boost in the North and got Grant some good press with which Sherman was sadly unable to relate. Tactically, the battle set the precedent for combined Army-Freshwater Navy operations in the Western Theater. Uh, Generally, the way it worked was that the transports would move infantry by river uh, to an intended target, where uh, their assault would be supported by Andrew Foote's ironclad gunboats, or sometimes the gunboats themselves would be sufficient. Uh, The approach was repeated more than once, and it proved highly effective. Strategically, uh, the victories established Union dominance of the Tennessee and Cumberland Rivers that would last for the rest of the war and eventually lead to the hugely important control of the Mississippi. Sherman said of the advantages conferred by the Rivers, We are much obliged to the Tennessee, which has favored us most opportunely, for I am never easy with a railroad, which takes a whole army to guard, whereas they can't stop the Tennessee, and each boat can make its own game, End quote. In a spread-out terrain like the Confederate West, where moving provisions and troops is vital, controlling the waterways that provide the most reliable means of transport is a significant advantage, maybe uh, more important than controlling the railroads in the Eastern Theater. And the fall of Fort Donelson also opened up a path for Union forces to occupy Nashville and all of Middle Tennessee, uh, which would otherwise have been a key source of food and supplies for the rebels. So, in terms of casualties, Forts Henry and Donelson were fairly unnoteworthy, uh, other than the glaring and, and inexcusable 12,000 rebels forced to surrender at Donelson uh, due to the uh, ineptitude of Floyd and Pillow. Uh, but strategically, they were important and marked the beginning of Grant's ascension on the national scene. As positive as Forts Henry and Donelson were for the North, they were equally negative for the South. General Albert Sidney Johnston was in charge of Confederate Western operations, and he was in a pretty tough position. He had hundreds of miles of border areas to protect, and nowhere near the troops he needed to do the job. So he had been getting by, in part, by spreading his troops too thin and bluffing. And the bluff had essentially been called by Grant in the recent losses, uh, which had revealed that that even outposts which were tremendously important strategically were undermanned. Johnston, though, was no posturing politician playing at soldier. The CSA was the third army in which he had served as a general along with the Army of Texas during its time as an independent nation, and the good old USA. Immediately prior to the war, he had been in command of the U.S. Army's Department of the Pacific. He had combat experience in five wars, including the Black Hawk War, Texas's War with Mexico, and the Mexican-American War. And he had once commanded the near-legendary 2nd U.S. Cavalry. Jefferson Davis, a uh, former officer himself, Considered Johnston without question the Confederacy's best general, and Grant remarked that he anticipated Johnston would be the most formidable general the Confederacy would produce. And Sherman, uh, who was not one to carelessly throw around praise and who knew uh, what he was talking about in military affairs, succinctly described Johnston as, quote, a real general. End quote. So, not a political appointment or junior officer rapidly promoted due to the lack of supply, a real general. So the point is, he, he knew what he was doing, and he knew it was time for a change in strategy. And what he decided on was a consolidation of forces near Corinth, Mississippi, where the Western Army would be reorganized into four corps, 10,000 men under Leonidas Polk, 16,000 under Braxton Bragg, 7,000 under former U.S. Vice President John Breckenridge and 7,000 under William Hardee, with 15,000 more on the way from Arkansas and Missouri under Earl Van Dorn. Johnston was banking on the Union forces, uh, getting overconfident and careless following the relatively smooth victories at Henry and Donelson, So he would combine all his resources and about 55,000 men right under Grant's nose. The uh, Corinth base was only 22 miles south of Grant's Uh, camp at Pittsburgh Landing. Then he'd try to land a knockout punch on an unsuspecting Union army under a still relatively inexperienced general. 22 miles north, Grant and Sherman were preparing for an advance on Corinth. They had 50,000 men at Pittsburgh Landing, waiting on Don Carlos Buell to arrive with 25,000 more. And they thought Johnston's force was much further away, still trying to regroup from Donaldson, Sherman was in command of the Advanced Division, nine miles off from Grant's headquarters. His division was the one that would be out front when the planned movement began, and they were camped uh, furthest south. Sherman had selected the Pittsburgh landing site, which he described as, quote, a magnificent plane for camping and drilling and a military point of great strength, end quote. He was about to see that assessment put to the test. Johnston and his second-in-command, General PGT Beauregard, uh, an early Confederate hero after uh, Fort Sumter and Manassas, uh, knew that Buell was on the way, and they decided to to throw their haymaker before the Yankee reinforcements arrived. Now, Johnston and Beauregard's plan had a lot of potential, but two critical setbacks ended up messing things up. First, the march from Corinth to Pittsburgh landing should have taken one day. To at most. But it took three days, due to a combination of bad weather, terrible execution by the rebel division commanders, and overall poor communication. They were supposed to be moving as covertly as possible to maintain the element of surprise, but over-anxious, green, noisy rebel soldiers almost gave up the surprise by unnecessarily discharging their muskets. Now, I say almost because there were numerous reports of rebel skirmishers in the woods south of the Union camp. But Sherman, the Union officer in the best position to do something about it, dismissed the reports out of hand. Now, I think it's reasonable to say that Sherman was overcompensating for his uh, supposed paranoia in Kentucky. Papers throughout the country had, had recently run reports about how he had lost his mind and had delusions of giant Confederate armies where none existed. So he didn't want to be Cassandra again. When a regimental colonel warned Sherman uh, of what he was pretty certain was a pending rebel attack, Sherman told him to, Take your damn regiment back to Ohio. Beauregard is not such a fool as to leave his base of operations and attack us in ours. End quote. Sherman realized uh, neither that the colonel was right and an attack was on the way, nor that it wasn't just Beauregard leading it, but Johnston himself. Now, early the morning of April 6th, Sherman discovered that Beauregard apparently was, in fact, a fool, or whatever you want to call it, when the unexpected rebel attack came as much of the Union army ate breakfast. When the unanticipated sounds of battle started ringing out, Sherman rode out to suspect the lines, now concerned that something was up. As he approached, a staff officer riding next to him took a ball, and Sherman called out, My God, we're attacked! Indeed. He barely had enough time to form up a line before the rebel wave hit, and thousands of Union soldiers panicked and fled. But Sherman stayed calm, uh, less nervous-looking under fire than most. He rode up and down the lines on horseback, rallying the men who had formed up to fight. He took a gunshot wound to the hand for the effort, wrapped the hand in a handkerchief, shrugged it off, and kept it the job at hand. He would have four horses shot out from underneath him and take another grazing gunshot wound to the shoulder on the first day of Shiloh, but always kept his head and stayed in the fight. Now, you need to remember... The men Sherman was commanding were not uh, oblivious to the recent press reports about their division commander, and the idea of fighting under a man widely believed to have lost his mind only a short time ago uh, made many Yankee soldiers uneasy. But it didn't take long for them to realize that that when under fire, Sherman was exactly the kind of officer an enlisted man wants in command. Uh, Shelby Foote describes the, the change in the perception of General Sherman. Quote, they had seen their commander leading them. Sherman was not the same man at all. He was not nervous. His shoulders did not twitch. He was calm and confident. Whatever else he might be, he certainly was not crazy. As we mentioned, hundreds of Yankee soldiers bolted when the surprise assault commenced. Many would run all the way to the banks of the Tennessee and not rejoin the army until that evening. But those that stayed to fight, and there were plenty who grabbed their weapons and braced for the onslaught. Fought like lions, stubbornly resisting the rebel charge, giving up ground only begrudgingly. And Sherman was leading the fierce resistance, keeping Grant's entire army from being swamped and driven into the Tennessee River. Grant was still miles away, but he was now aware of the attack and hard at work organizing the rest of the army. Sherman sent a messenger to apprise him of the intense situation, Tell Grant if he has any men to spare, I can use them. If not, I will do the best I can. We are holding them pretty well just now. Pretty well, but it's hot as hell. Even with the fierce resistance, epitomized by the, the savagery of the infamous hornet's nest, Sherman's division was driven back several miles. They were wearing down, and the state of affairs was starting to look desperate. But then, the second Confederate setback put the brakes on the thus far successful attack. Sidney Johnston was playing a role up and down the Rebel line, similar to what Sherman was doing for the Yankees. But instead of stealing the resolve of the defenders, Johnston was spurring on the attackers. Like Sherman, he was out in front, leading an attack against one of the stubborn pockets of resistance. And like Sherman, and thousands of other men at Shiloh, he was under fire. Except that Rather than a shot to the hand or a grazing wound to the shoulder, Johnston took a ball to the back of his knee. He brushed off the wound, just a scratch, as the Black Knight would say, except that it wasn't. The bullet severed a major artery in Johnston's leg, and he bled to death. A tourniquet could have probably saved his life, or so I've read, but his staff surgeon, on Johnston's orders, was attending to wounded Yankee soldiers further back behind rebel lines as a full general johnston was the highest ranking officer killed in the civil war on either side now in theory the rebels should have been okay at least in the short term after all the backup wasn't an untested rookie fresh from the minor leagues it was beauregard one of the the confederate army's four other full generals and an experienced leader Uh, On a quick side note, um, many, uh, probably most of the historians uh, I've read don't have a uh, particularly um, high opinion of Beauregard as a commander, uh, viewing him as as an unrealistic strategist who who concocted um, harebrained plans, uh, with the exception uh, of the defense of Charleston that he had led, and sometimes the Bermuda 100 campaign, where he put Ben Butler's army in a bottle and corked it, to paraphrase Grant's personal memoirs. But Sherman biographer and um, military historian Robert O'Connell likes Beauregard. He described the Cajun as a creative and unpredictable uh, fox of a general uh, who could have had a greater impact on the war if not for the, his uh, bad personal relationship with Jefferson Davis, which kept him out of, of the most important commands and uh, did a lot to damage his reputation throughout the South. Now, I'm not sure if I, if I fully subscribe to O'Connell's view, but it is interesting to hear an alternate take. And, and you can't deny Beauregard was an outside-the-box thinker, and he, he had real experience and was schooled in military strategy. But at Shiloh, the loss of Johnston came as a shock to Beauregard and took him off his game. He decided that rather than pressing the advantage that the surprise attack had earned at great cost, he would take the evening off to regroup the men and reevaluate his position in light of the chaos of the day's fighting. They could finish off the Yankees in the morning, in the unlikely event that Grant didn't retreat during the night. Hindsight is 2020, of course, but whether you like Beauregard or not, it was a really bad decision, because the delay let Grant and Sherman regroup too. And Beauregard didn't realize Buell would be arriving that night with 25,000 more Yankee muskets. And Grant was not going anywhere. He and Sherman spent the evening and well into the night, reorganizing and preparing, not for a retreat across the Tennessee, as Beauregard and Sherman both initially anticipated, but for a counterattack. The prior day's battlefield was an absolute wreck, and the cries of wounded Billy Yanks and Johnny Rebs rang out all night, keeping many of the exhausted but uninjured men from sleeping. Sherman wrote of the uh, carnage, The scenes on this field would have cured anybody of war. Mangled bodies, dead, dying in every conceivable shape, without heads, legs, and horses. I think we have buried 2,000 since the fight. Our own and the enemy and the wounded fill houses, tents, steamboats, in every conceivable place. End quote. Sherman recalled running into Grant as the two made the rounds. Sherman approached Grant, commenting, Well, Grant, we've had the devil's own day today. The response was quintessential Grant. Yep. Lick him tomorrow, though. Sherman later wrote that he had expected Grant to do what seemed the sensible thing and withdraw. He wasn't yet familiar with the psychology of his uh, soon-to-be-close friend. So Buell arrived that night, turning the numbers decisively in the Union's favor. Rebel cavalry commander Nathan Bedford Forrest spotted Buell and tried to report the game-changing development to Beauregard, but the rebels were too disorganized, and uh, the news never made it to the right place. As it turns out, uh, Beauregard was camped in Sherman's tent. Early the next morning, Sherman and Grant launched their attack, and it caught the rebels completely off guard, uh, like a fighter who's moving in for a knockout punch and, and runs into a stiff right cross. Now it was the Confederates' turn to get pushed back and, and fight fiercely to avoid being overrun and destroyed. Sherman was tasked with pursuing the withdrawal and ran into Forrest, who characteristically fought like a demon, turning back to pursuit. It was not the last time Sherman and Forrest would cross paths. As the war wound on, Forrest would become the one rebel more than any other that kept Sherman up at night. Northern newspapers initially reported Shiloh as a Union defeat and blamed Grant for the loss. When the actual results became clear, uh, Grant still caught blame for high casualties and a lack of preparation. Not long before... He had been the darling of the press, but the press is fickle. He still gets the W, though. Even so, Henry Halleck relieved Grant of his field command, taking it for himself, and effectively putting Grant on the sidelines. Sherman, on the other hand, came out of Shiloh smelling like roses. He rightfully got credit for leading the desperate resistance to the surprise attack uh, under intense pressure. The men credited him for leading bravely from the front, and fellow officers uh, gave him credit for staying cool in a very tense situation. Uh, when he wasn't trying to torpedo Grant's career, Halleck praised Sherman's efforts to Simon Cameron, quote, It is the unanimous opinion here that Brigadier General W.T. Sherman saved the fortune of the day on the 6th and contributed largely to the glorious victory on the 7th, End quote. Even some of the politicians in D.C. noticed the effort, and no doubt with some assistance from Senator John Sherman and Thomas Ewing. Shortly after Shiloh, Sherman was promoted to Major General of Volunteers on the strength of his performance. It was the beginning of his rapid rise. He had finally proven himself to his fellow warriors, but more importantly to himself uh, as a soldier under fire. And the confidence boost was noticeable. Uh, According to Ellen, quote, Cump feels fully vindicated from the miserable slanders of last winter and is again in fine spirits, end quote. Sherman used the quick turnaround uh, of his fortunes as an example to talk Grant out of submitting his resignation. Grant was ready to go home, having decided that, that he was in the way, now that he wasn't commanding any men. But Sherman convinced Grant that his stock would rise again as quickly as it had fallen. Of Shiloh, he said, That single battle had given me new life. Grant needed to stick it out until some happy accident might restore you to favor and your true place. And besides, Sherman explained, Grant would be bored and restless if he went home while there was a war going on. So Sherman's speech, of course, worked, And as predicted, Grant's stock rebounded before long when Henry Halleck was summoned to Washington uh, three months later to take over the uh, general-in-chief position from McClellan, and Grant was put back in command on the ground out west. After Shiloh, Beauregard and his bruised rebel army escaped back to Corinth. It probably would have been a, 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 a good time for the Yankees to strike an aggressive posture and pushed the rebels into another battle while they were still healing and reorganizing from Johnston's death. But Halleck instead opted for caution. His slow crawl toward Corinth allowed Beauregard to slip away, giving up the town but saving the army and the substantial munitions, food, and supplies that had been stashed in Corinth. Now, Halleck's reticence was was somewhat understandable. I mean, the Union army was still healing after Shiloh too. It had been the bloodiest battle in the United States history up till that point. The combined casualties approached 24,000, with over 3,500 killed in the fighting and and many more to die from their wounds. As has often been noted, more men were killed or wounded at Shiloh than uh, in the Revolutionary War, the War of 1812, and the Mexican War combined. Sherman remarked that the the gory aftermath of Shiloh would have cured anyone of war. For everyone on the scene, really, the the bloody battle changed their views on the war. The delusions of a quick, decisive, relatively painless victory for either side were put to rest. Grant concluded that victory over the South would require complete conquest. And Sherman, from a uh, purely career advancement perspective, Sherman Shiloh had been good for Sherman, uh, but psychologically, Shiloh was a little more ambiguous. Sure, there was the confidence boost we mentioned, but the carnage, uh, a preview of what was to come over the next three years, was confirmation of the fears that had had nearly pushed Sherman to madness. Shortly after the battle, he confided to Ellen uh, the, the deep mental impact Shiloh left in its wake. I still feel the horrid nature of this war, and the piles of dead gentlemen and wounded and maimed makes me more anxious than ever for some hope of an end, but I know such a thing cannot be for a long, long time. Indeed, I never expected, or to survive it. Wrap up part two of our portrait of William Tecumseh Sherman. Now, this was a little bit of a shorter episode for us. Uh, I wanted to get something out quicker, and then the next one is going to be longer. In part three, we're going to look at Sherman's occupation of Memphis along with the Vicksburg and Atlanta campaigns. For Vicksburg in particular, we'll probably gloss it over a little bit like we did in this episode with um, Fort Henry and Donelson. Uh, just because that was, again, that was uh, Grant was the star of the show there. And, and then picking up with the Atlanta campaign, we'll really start to take a deep dive. And of course, we'll get into his relationship with the men and the foraging parties throughout the South that ha- have made uh, Sherman such a, a divisive figure in the South. I kind of doubt we're going to make it all the way to the March to the Sea. But we'll see how much writing time I have over the next couple weeks. The research is done, so hopefully it won't be too long. If you have any questions or comments about the show, you can reach us at blueandgraypodcast at gmail.com, gray with an E. As always, thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoyed the show.